watchers in the fourth dimension. to our third consecutive Halloween horror episode of The Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm your Crypt Keeper, Riley. I'm Anthony. And I'm Julie. This year, we go back to the world of Hammer Horror with 1958's Dracula, or as we in the States would call, The Horror of Dracula. And we also revisit the anthology films of Amicus Productions with 1973's The Vault of Horror. Our musical intro, once again, was from George C. Music on YouTube, who creates tons of variations of the Doctor Who theme. As per our normal routine, each year we select two horror films with a major Who connection, with it usually starring one of the actors that has portrayed the Doctor, and we will go through each film one by one with questions provided by me. Our main Who connections this year are our Daleks Films Doctor, Peter Cushing, fighting off unspeakable evil as Dr. Van Helsing, and the fourth Doctor, Tom Baker, seeking out vengeance on the art world, one destroyed portrait at a time. Now it is time for our double feature. The Horror of Dracula was the first of the Hammer Films Dracula series. We have already covered the background of Hammer in previous episodes, so let me point out a few facts about the film before we head into questions. After the success of the Quatermass series and The Curse of Frankenstein, Hammer decided to give a shot at Dracula, with who would be one of the most prolific Hammer directors, Terence Fisher, at the helm, and Jimmy Sangster to write the screenplay. Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee were paired up again from their success with The Curse of Frankenstein, and production began in 1957 with a budget of around £81,000. The film would end up earning around $3.5 million worldwide, and an article in Time Out magazine from 2017, which pulled 150 actors, directors, writers, producers, and critics, voted it the 65th best British film ever. That's not bad for a film which had its world premiere in, and I'm not kidding here, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. (laughs) So... Let's talk about the horror of Dracula, or just Dracula if you're British. I hinted in the intro, this is not our first Hammer film, nor is our first Hammer Dracula film. Last year we discussed The Scars of Dracula from 1970. Now that we have seen The Horror of Dracula, how does The Horror of Dracula stack up against The Scars of Dracula? Well, it's nice to get a speaking Dracula this time. I don't necessarily (laughs) think it's better or worse. One, I am a pretty big fan of the book. I really enjoy it. I've listened to it a few times on audiobook. And this movie towed the line of trying to follow the book, but making really weird choices as to why it didn't follow the book. And it drove me nuts. Like (laughs) the fact that Mina was supposed to marry Jonathan Harker, like in the books, but no, she is Lucy's mother, which I found really odd. It just, there was some weirdness going on there. And that just kind of took me out of it a little bit because I was like, it's Mina Harker. Mina Harker, but it's not Mina Harker. So that was just a little bit of me being a fan of the book. And then from a Scars of Dracula perspective, I actually preferred Christopher Lee as a non-speaking Dracula. Wow. Okay. And the reason why I say that is I don't want to get too much into it. I think there's some more questions around it. 
but he had to rely a bit more on his body acting and facial expressions and things. Not to say that he doesn't do it in the horror of Dracula, but I actually think I liked some of that better. Wow. I know. Interesting take. (laughs) Anthony? I would agree. They make some odd choices when adapting the book. I actually think it's more appropriate to have the US title since that doesn't give the impression necessarily that it's a direct adaptation. As Julie said, they make some odd choices. I feel like with the book, its setting in England was actually such a big part of the book in itself. And here it's set in Germany. So it's very clearly not a straight up adaptation. But equally, I tried to kind of divorce (laughs) the concept of the adaptation from is it actually good as a film? And Mm -hmm. yes, I enjoy it a lot. I think Christopher Lee and Cushing are both very, very good all through it. In in terms of comparing it to The Scars of Dracula, I think it's a slightly more cohesive story. I, I seem to remember saying last year we thought The Scars of Dracula couldn't quite decide on its setting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Yep. Whereas this is happening in Germany. That's yes. fair. That is very fair. In the past, there was no doubt as to whether it was in modernity or in the past. There was no doubt as to whether it was in Germany or in England. It seemed a lot more focused. Going back to what Julie said about Christopher Lee's performance in both films, and we've discussed Christopher Lee thoroughly in past Halloween specials, but this is his first portrayal of Dracula, and this is what he's most known for. There's one element I feel like we should re-examine, and that is in an interview, Christopher Lee stated that he believed he added something to the character that had not been done before, and that was that he saw a sadness in the character, what he would call the loneliness of evil. Do you think you could spot that in his performance in this film or perhaps The Scars of Dracula? Um, no. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's interesting because sadness, I would say no. Loneliness, I might actually be able to be on board with. And I do think those are two different things. And the fact that I think he was dependent on having a woman around because he immediately after his was killed or made completely undead. I don't know exactly how to phrase that. He had to go and make another one. I know that was partially just a revenge type of thing, but I also think that after seeing the picture, I think he was enamored with Mina, Lucy, all that kind of stuff. So I think that's kind of where he went down on that road. I don't really see the sadness per se, but I really can't talk about how that compares with other versions because as you guys know i haven't seen very many horror films (laughs) if i'm going to compare it to the one i've seen which is dracula dead and loving it i think that's going to be not comparable (laughs) (laughs) the concept that he's getting revenge in this is a bit of an odd one because i could understand it if he kept jonathan alive Mm. for when he goes off to turn mina but instead he turns jonathan into a vampire Mm-hmm. And you could make all sorts of philosophical arguments as to, at that point, how aware is Jonathan of what's happening? Obviously, Van Helsing comes and kills him. But let's take the hypothetical perspective that maybe he didn't. And Dracula kept vampire Jonathan locked up in his castle while he goes off to turn his bride. I, I don't <laughs> think that works as a concept for revenge. Agreed. Yeah, that's fair. That's another odd choice. But to your point, there is very much that need to have someone because as soon as Mina is killed off, he turns to Lucy and tries to turn her. So there's definitely that pathological need to have someone and it's not just Mm -hmm. about the revenge. As much as I like the concept of having that within the character to make the character more full 
I can't help but think with Christopher Lee's performances as Dracula is that it's always the thin veneer of civility and a gentleman. And behind that is just this vicious killer monster that's just insane with what terror he can bring. So I can't really fit in where the sadness or the loneliness comes in necessarily because I feel like those two elements that he brings here are just so overpowering. Speaking of Dracula and the character as a whole, Terrence Fisher stated that his greatest contribution to the Dracula myth was to bring out the underlying sexual element of the story by noticing that Dracula preyed upon the sexual frustrations of his female victims. That's a bold claim by Terrence Fisher. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But in this film, when Mina returns after being lured away by the false messenger to the address of The Undertaker, Fisher instructed the actress, Melissa Stribling, that you should imagine you have had one whale of a sexual night, the one of your whole sexual experience. Give me that in your face. Now, first off, do you believe... Fisher was the person who brought out the underlying sexuality in the story of Dracula. And also, do you believe that Lee had the needed sexual charisma? And did Melissa Stribling look like she had her world rocked? No, (laughs) absolutely not. Which one of those three or all three? All three. First off, her hair alone was not wild enough as if she had her world rocked. I'm sorry. She's not going to be look as put together as she was. Blanket statement, hands down. That's going to be it. As I alluded to, I think earlier, or I think I stepped away from it because I wanted to talk about it here. One of the things about the scars of Dracula is Christopher Lee's Dracula was so much more sexual than in this one. Hands down, absolutely more. He could just give a look. And for all the women, I'm like, I get it. (laughs) If I saw him looking at me like that, like, please, especially that time period, men were Mm -hmm. the worst, especially because in that one, they had the stalker dude. So, no, I don't think that it was very well done here. I think it might have played some of the stepping stones to get there in future Dracula films, but I don't think it was there in this one. Yeah, maybe it was the 1958 versus 1970. A lot happened in between there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it is such a bold claim to your point, Riley, because the story of Dracula, to some extent, was originally intended by Bram Stoker to be effectively a tale about sexually transmitted diseases. And Dracula as that concept basically syphilis i think preying on the young and particularly women so to make that claim that he brought sexuality out for the first time ever in the story is candidly (laughs) bullshit (laughs) it's very bold to say that but it's very definitely wrong and there has definitely been a tendency ever since to play dracula up as a young sexually attractive not even young but as a sexually attractive creature but you could possibly make an argument that even Bella Lugosi had some of that. Oh, yeah. So, sorry, Terence, but I'm going to call you on your bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've discussed Christopher Lee. Now we have to speak about my favorite, Peter Cushing. We're familiar with him as the Doctor, and this is our first time seeing him as Van Helsing, a character that he would go on to play four more times. He had top billing in this film. What do you think about his performance and how they portrayed the character of Van Helsing in this? He's very good. He's very, yes. very good. I've never seen Pete's Cushing not be very good, though. <laughs> Accurate statement. He was my favorite part. Mm-hmm. Not just how he acted, because obviously he's going to act circles. I won't say around everyone. He can't act circles around Christopher Lee because he is also very good. But what I liked about the portrayal of Van Helsing was showing how methodical he was 
having the written and verbal accounts and everything like that. So it wasn't just Peter Cushing himself, but I think that how they decided to portray Vade Helsing was much better than in more recent adaptations where they just make him the muscle who shoots crossbows. (laughs) I really enjoyed this version of him so much better in this. I would agree with that. Julie, you're spot on. I'm not sure I have much more to add. (laughs) Riley, what did you think? Well, I love Cushing. When I first watched these films as a kid, I was immediately just enamored by the acting and the character. Just really enjoyed it. And just, I liked how the portrayal is very stern and maybe seems a little distant, but he's very passionate and he's very strong in what he believes. And you can see that underneath everything, despite being very stern, like I said, you can see that he still feels things. He's affected by things, but he has to like put on a, as they would say, a stiff upper lip and move forward. And the fact that he's using his brain and he's just not using his brawn and just using his intelligence, that's just something about the character and Peter Cushing's performance that I really, really enjoyed. And he does continue later on in the series. Unfortunately, though, he gets involved in some of the more outlandish later Hammer Dracula series films. I believe there is one about ninjas later on. So that'll be for another Halloween episode. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, they get quite out there. Yes. Though the Dracula AD 1972 is not bad despite it being completely out of the classic time and place. Yeah, that's when they finally decided they were actually going to set it in the modern day. Yeah, and it has some good bits. Well, we talked about Cushing as a Who alumni. We also have our favorite, the Celestial Toymaker, shows up. Yeah? Yes. Yes. What do we think there? He does have a bit in there where we have the scene within the, the crypt with his big scene with Cushing. That was a good back and forth there, wouldn't you think? It's interesting looking at him so young because you're used to seeing him, at least the modern Mm. viewer, I think, is used to seeing him as Alfred in Batman. Right, And as Alfred, he's wild eyebrows and (laughs) he looks old. But here, he's actually a pretty handsome dude. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And Jeffrey Bailden uh, makes an appearance. He played the porter who will show up later in Doctor Who. We have not gotten there yet. We've already talked about him because he was in The House That Drip Blood from our previous Halloween episode. He was, and he was one of the actors originally considered to be the first Doctor before they brought in Hartnell. Like we said, there's only 50 British actors in work at one time. Oh, wow. Yeah. As much as 50? I wasn't aware of that. It's seven. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it was just seven? Okay. Yeah. yeah. I was actually interested in how, okay, Michael Gough was playing Arthur. I wasn't expecting him to be as much of a driving force as he was. Typically centered around the women and a little bit of it was with Mina getting captured and everything, but also at the same time, he was very instrumental and very in there, which when you read the books, the other men are a lot more involved than in a lot of movie adaptations lead you to believe. There was also like Quentin and a few other men who were involved in that whole thing. So I enjoyed that. I can't really comment much on the uh, Porter dude because he was barely in it. Yeah, it's true. (laughs) Just one of those things that comes passing through. Speaking of the scene with Arthur and Van Helsing and Mina being there, it's funny how she only gets tricked away because they don't tell her what they're doing <laughs> if only they just kind of led her into what their plan was and what was going on a whole lot of this mess could have been avoided riley yes look at the time period please i know i know 
despite their inability to include women within their plans, how would you rate this film? Would you consider it worth a watch or not? I think so. I really think it's one of the early classics in the whole Hammer series. It's a quintessential gothic horror movie. Yes. So, yeah. I mean, I agree. If you're into horror and you're into Dracula, it's obviously something that you need to see. Even if you're not super into horror, it's still a pretty good film. I think there's obviously lower budget than what a lot of people are used to. So keep that in mind with some of that really bright red blood. (laughs) But you come to expect that out of Hammer Horror films if you've seen enough of them. And I think just to add on... I don't think there's a single film adaptation of Dracula, at least not a professionally made one, that is 100% faithful to the book. Oh, yes. Everything takes liberties with the source material. So you've just got to figure out which one fits your aesthetic the best. And for some reason, that gothic late 50s, 60s hammer horror movie style just speaks to me. (laughs) Yeah, it's the setting, the backdrop, it looks really good. And also what I had noticed was that there just isn't enough use of mist and fog in horror films anymore. Am I right? I think all the fog machines were built in the 50s, 60s, and went off the wayside. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I think they broke them in the mid-2000s when they did Silent Hill. That just knackered (laughs) them. (laughs) All right, well... I would say, just obviously, I think my opinion about this film is very clear. I really do enjoy it. I do think it is still probably one of the top 100 films from England, uh, and it is definitely worth a watch, especially anyone who has watched any horror films. I feel like this is kind of required to see because it really arguably reinvigorates Dracula films or vampire films, in my opinion. After we go through the Universal period, with Bill Lugosi and then it kind of dips because then we start having all these parodies and you have like Abin Costello meet the Wolfman and then it just kind of hey, I'm not saying they're not good I love they're, they're Abin Costello <laughs> right they're they're fun and they're good but it, it's when horror then turns to comedy and then what's left mm-hmm. so now it's been this is the rebirth and I just think that it's very important for anyone into horror to at least to have seen this film at this time I believe we'll take a short intermission Enter death's waiting room, if you dare. Below the crypt lies the vault of horror. A treasure chest of the macabre. Madness. Voodoo. Vampires. Torture. And terror. All the things that make life worth leaving. That's how it is. And how it always will be. The Vault of Horror. Time for the second film in our double feature, The Vault of Horror. This film would be the fifth 
horror anthology film that Amicus produced. It takes the name from the classic Vault of Horror comics published by EC Comics in the early 1950s, yet none of the stories in the film are from that comic. Almost all of them come from the Tales from the Crypt comic books. The film was directed by Roy Ward Baker, who had directed horror films for both Amicus and Hammer. It was written by Milton Sabotsky, who helped form Amicus Productions. As to how well the film did in the box office, I could not find anything, so that probably tells a story in itself. And critics were not very enthused, other than saying that the acting was better than the material. So, <laughs> The Vault of Horror. This isn't our first Amicus horror anthology film. We had covered The House That Dripped Blood previously. Since we have already discussed these types of films generally, I think it would be fun to ask one question per story, and if that breaks out into further discussion, we can dive into those stories further. So the first story is called Midnight Mess, and I will point out right now that the character of Donna is played by Anna Massey, who would later work on A Big Finish Story, and Eric Chitty, who played the waiter, was in The Massacre, and he will come up later in our watch through. The only question I have for you about this story is this, is that it hinges on an Englishman being so offended that a waiter may have lied to him about when they are open that it leads him to the funniest vampire fangs in the history of cinema. Do they or do they not look like walruses? <laughs> Those teeth were something else. Yeah. I don't think they're nearly as goofy as the ones we saw in The House That Dripped Blood. Oh, really? Hmm. Yeah, because those ones were a bit too close together. Oh, they, mm. yeah. They looked mm, they kinda, so goofy yeah. to me. What was really funny is that I totally called it that he killed his sister, but did not kill his sister. And once I caught on with the vampire restaurant, which was basically when he saw people entering in after he had left, I thought that was brilliant. I always like to think of if there were actual vampires out there, like what would actually happen? Like, is there true blood like in the show, true blood and everything? Mm -hmm. So just a sit down restaurant open after the hours of the normal restaurant. is just so clever to me and I like it. I think the premise is solid. The premise is solid. I think that there's a weird vibe of the film where it kind of feels like a, it kind of has a nightmare logic to it. I don't know if I can express that anymore, other than it doesn't feel tangibly realistic. I mean, when you get to the end, you find out that it kind of is nightmarish. Mm -hmm, right. And then the execution, though, it's the teeth. I feel like the reveal and the, the final look could have been done better. But other than that, I think the premise and everything else leading up to it is very good. And I really enjoyed the ending with the tap stuck in the, the guy's tap. neck. Oh. It's pretty gruesome. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't surprised when I read that that was actually cut for the original US release. Oh, really? I yeah. had not known that. You're right. It's very interesting because watching it this time, I had seen this film before. I was kind of taken aback at how gruesome that was. <laughs> and I'm oh, fine yeah. with a lot of horror, but I was kind of shocked because that's usually yeah, it's pretty hardcore for them and for these type of films. Absolutely. Let's jump on to the next story. It's called The Neat Job. It's starring the prolific Terry Thomas, whose Wikipedia article describes him as often portraying disreputable members of the upper classes, especially cads, toffs, and bounders. <laughs> that was just excellent, excellent description right there. I know, isn't it? <laughs> He's clearly an excellent comedic actor. I'm, and many people are probably familiar with him, mostly from It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. But what do you think of his role in this story? Does he fit here? Did they intend... For it to be very humorous, did it come through or was it kind of one of those mishmash of horror comedy that doesn't work or what do you think? 
I don't know about from a comedic perspective, but I think he did the job. I think he mm-hmm. completed the assignment in that he's kind of uh, a dick. Yeah, you can't <laughs> help but dislike him. He's yeah, as Julie says, he's a dick, and he plays it very well. And it's one of those situations where it's masked under the fact that he's very OCD. So people be like, oh, well, he just likes things a certain way. I'm like, no, 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 no. He's a dick. I'm sorry. There's a line there. And you can like things a certain way. You can have OCD tendencies and not yell at your wife. Just throwing that out there. And the ending is so brilliant. (laughs) Especially having a jar of odds and ends. Just... (laughs) made me so happy and that he drove her to do the same thing that he did except she did it with his body it's funny how these stories and especially from the old ec comic era they're basically gruesome morality plays in a way yeah and i find it interesting that they were so disappointed i guess with how this all turned out because it could have been tightened up they could have done a couple of things here and there differently but each story, I'm like, I get it. I get why all these things ended so poorly, and none of it seems out of the realm of possibilities either. Before we move on, I do just want to give respect for Terry Thomas, who by all accounts was actually quite a nice chap in real life and eventually passed away from Parkinson's. But also, I don't know if either of you are familiar with the genre of music known only as chap hop, which is... Uh, uh, what? Oh yeah, there's a whole <laughs> genre that is effectively uh, a parody rap done in very upper-class English accents. It's brilliant. But there's a practitioner of chap hop called Mr. B, the Gentleman Rhymer. <laughs> One of his lines is, Like Terry Thomas, I'm a bounder, my lady. Still living life like it's the 1880s. <laughs> oh my god. So, I... shout out for that. Yes. Anthony, I've known you for how long and this is the first time you've introduced me to that? Sorry, I'll send you some links. <laughs> And we'll put some in the show description yes. as well. Yes, we will. Yes, we will. Wow. And I thought that I was going to crack everyone up by bringing up the point that you never expected in the story to see Terry Thomas in a pair of panties. But... <laughs> um, you're also not wrong. True. But I don't think that beats Chap Hop. So. <laughs> okay. The third story is called This Trick Will Kill You. It's the story of an asshole magician who travels to India and points out how people do their tricks on the street. He later murders an innocent woman who won't reveal how she performs real magic. So my question is, is the world of being a magician that cutthroat that they murder people? (laughs) And also, in in general, what did you think of the story as a whole? I personally thought it was enjoyable because I liked how they were... Obviously, they didn't go to India, but I think they did a decent job of making it seem like they weren't filming in England. They did. I set the setting well. They definitely did. I enjoyed this one. I really did. I thought the chap who played Sebastian, Kurt Jurgens. Yes. He's brilliant. Yes, he was in. He was uh, the villain in The Spy Who Loved Me, I believe. Oh my gosh, he was. I'd forgotten that. Yes, yes. He was excellent in that too. Let's be honest. It's not that cutthroat. <laughs> it's not. And yes. The super dick move was just giving away the game in front of everybody. Yeah. It's one thing to go up to them after and be like, okay, I know this is how you did it, but hmm, I'm sorry. If From you're one a, magician to another. Yes. You know? If you were actual good magician, you would not do that. You would have better etiquette than that. Yeah. So they had what was coming to him. 
They had it coming. <laughs> they had yeah. I personally enjoyed the element of where his wife slash girlfriend slash assistant when she climbs up the rope and then she just screams and then just disappears, disappears vanishes, and then there's just this blood scene that sticks to the ceiling. It's so very macabre and unusual and disorienting. It's uh, unsettling. I like that. It was something new that you wouldn't expect. Yeah. And I totally expected it, but having the woman that he killed roll over and stare at him when he died, oh, poetic justice right there. Yeah. And just, I had to look it up. He originally offers her to buy the trick, the rope trick from her. 40,000 rupees. Now, I wasn't able to find an inflation calculator for that for back then, but right now, 40,000 rupees is 375 pounds. So not exactly a lot of money. So call that $500-ish? Yeah. It will take? Yeah. (laughs) Now let's go into which arguably is probably, in my opinion, the weakest of the stories, Bargain and Death. The fourth story where a man comes up with the brilliant idea of being buried alive in order to pull off an insurance scam. (sighs) Wouldn't it have been easier just to do how everyone else does it and just jump in front of a moving car real quick and then try to sue him? What do you guys think about this one? Yeah, I mean, the whole fake your own death to get the insurance money is a bit tired. Right. Even in 1972, it was a bit tired. Yeah, and you would think you would have a better partner in it. His partner was very, like, schemey to begin with. So did you really think he was going to dig you back up? No. Now, I'm not going to lie. I thought this was going to turn out completely different, though. I thought that those med students were going to dig him up while he was still alive, but unconscious or pretend dead, and cut him up alive. Yeah, that would have been better. You're right. (laughs) But I called it super early. As soon as they showed the med students, I was like, so I think that's why they didn't go that direction. They wanted to surprise you. This is where we do get another little bit of a Doctor Who connection in that Michael Craig, who played Maitland, will be in four episodes in the Colin Baker era. Oh, all right. We'll see him in Doctor Who. We just haven't got there yet. But we will. We will. Unless we make a bargain in death. (laughs) You're also right. This was the weakest. I do enjoy the kind of big red stop sign jerk ending of the person in the cemetery, the grave worker, you know, Mm -hmm. killing him. That's a cute little bit. And then also the whole event causing the betraying partner to crash his car. Once again, it says we get that morality play sense, but the premise there seems very weak and tired. So let's go on to what I think is probably the most interesting story of the entire film, Drawn and Quartered. And here we are with our fourth doctor, Tom Baker, sporing a very big old beard. He is quite interesting in this role, I believe. He, of course, is our Who connection. And also there is the character of the art critic is played by Terrence Alexander, who will also show up for us, but that is later on. And this is a story of a revenge through a painting, and it also includes Denholm Elliott that we all love from the Ennio Jones movies. Now, it's a fun story of voodoo. What do you think? Should Baker have brought the beard over to Doctor Who? Well, I do want to give a shout out on that because this was only two years after he was Rasputin in Nicholas and Alexandra. Oh. So, two big film roles with a big old beard. (laughs) I don't know. I'm maybe thinking it could have been interesting if he'd kept it. I think having a couple episodes 
with the doctor having a beard would be interesting. I don't know how all that works, though, because it doesn't seem like Time Lords tend to have beards, or at least they don't grow and lose them. Right. Well, wait and see. (laughs) Oh, well, I think there might have been some. But anyway, that's besides the point. We haven't gotten there yet. We have not. But yes, what I loved about this is I love me a good revenge story gone wrong. I do really enjoy that. There's a couple things I called very early on. The second that he stuck his hand in, I was like, he shouldn't work on his self-portrait because that hand is going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. Lo and behold, that is 100% what happened. I was not expecting it to get as far as it did. And for the very gruesome deaths of the art critic and the other folks involved in that scheme, oh boy, that was rough. The guy lost two hands at once. <laughs> with with, <laughs> with a paper with that cutter. chopper. Yes. yes, I know. I don't think they make them that strong, though. I don't think they go through bone. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> have you used one, Riley? Yes, I have. Okay. I have used a paper cutter like that. Did you stick your finger or your arm in there to test it out? <laughs> no, because Tom Baker had not done a portrait of me that would force me against my will to put my hands in there. We can arrange that. Let me call Tom's agent. <laughs> does he have a cameo that he that he does that where he can do that? But it's the most interesting. It's the most in-depth. And I believe it's the longest of all of them. Yes, I think it was. One thing I really enjoyed about it was it actually took place about two miles from where I grew up. So I grew up in Putney and a lot of the scenes take place in East Sheen, which is basically between Putney and Richmond. Spent a lot of time in that area growing up. There was a really great Indian restaurant I used to like. Once again, we have a story that takes place, elements of it take place outside of England. Do you think they really transported you away to <laughs> to an island with him in a hut? Do you think that worked? It was fairly clearly a studio. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Doc 2 has done far worse. Right, right. Accurate. We haven't discussed the framing story here. Our opening credits for this entire film include our principals just one by one entering into an elevator and going down, and then they find themselves strangely in this kind of basement parlor. What do we think about this framing device? First off, the music was way more intense than it needed to be, and I loved it. (laughs) You could 100% hear DS E-rate in there, which if listeners aren't super familiar with ds ray is the death theme evil theme that is often used in a lot of films you can even hear it in toy story backwards just fyi okay all right i go down weird rabbit holes guys i like it it's in toy story 3 when they're about to be incinerated is when they oh, play wow yes is when they have a musical cue that is ds ray backwards so i Loved it. It was too over the top. And I'm like, yep, nope, this is great. They just go downstairs and decide that, you know what the best idea is, is to sit around this table and drink. Just have a drink. Let's talk about our nightmares together. Let's do it. (laughs) We're idiots. It's fine. I think it's rather fun. I mean, (laughs) I don't quite know how they all end up. I'm not sure my inclination would be to talk to four strangers about my nightmares, but I could certainly be like, well, there's no way out of here. So we may as well have a drink and chat. That part to me is very realistic. I think it's a very positive showing of men coming together and expressing their feelings and emotions, much like the Diamond Dogs and Ted Lasso. Yes. <laughs> and yet they're all terrible people who are coming together yes. and being nice to each other. Like, really? <laughs> yes. 
it's the framing devices for these anthology films are always to me very fun and interesting I don't like it when they decide not to do it, where they just will cut the story and then we just go straight into another story with no kind of like in between or something like that. There's something, I guess, campfire-esque about doing it this way, Mm -hmm. like folklore, the oral tradition. Yeah, and certainly all the Amicus movies we've watched so far, which is a grand total of two, have done it, and I've really enjoyed that with both of them. Well, to wrap up, how would you rate this film and how would you compare it to The House of Drip Blood? And which of the five stories was your favorite? And is this worth a watch for others? In comparison to the house that dripped blood, I think the acting and a couple other things were better in the house that dripped blood. But there's something satisfying by seeing terrible things happen to terrible people. So a part of me was a lot more fulfilled (laughs) in getting to see that. So I like them both in different ways, I guess I would say. My favorite story, even though I think Drawn and Quartered is the most interesting, I think I enjoyed the neat Mm -hmm. job the best. I'm not going to lie. Oh, interesting. Okay. I just Mm. thought I would have gone crazy too, lady. I understand. (laughs) And I would recommend it to people. I think that it's an interesting watch. It's short. And if you want it to be shorter, you can just watch it in chunks. You can watch 15 minutes of something, you can go about your business and come back to it. So I like it. And that's exactly what I did do. I did watch (laughs) this in chunks, mostly because I was trying to watch it on lunch breaks. So I watched a couple one day and a couple another and then the final one and the end frame together on a third time. I think overall, I also preferred it to The House That Drip Blood. It felt more tonally consistent to me. The House That Dripped Blood couldn't quite decide whether it wanted to be really campy. There was that whole Waxworks one that was pretty campy. And then the cloak, the one with Pertwee, was very campy as well. But then the other two in that movie played it a lot more seriously. Versus this, which I think the tone, while there was certainly some humour in it, was pretty serious. The tapping out of the jugular vein was darkly comedic. Mm -hmm. I think Terry Thomas, again, was comedic but in a very awkward way it wasn't side-splittingly funny so this one stuck more to the horror and i think it really benefited from it i do want to give a shout out one thing we didn't mention was the wife in the neat job was played by glennis johns mm-hmm. who was mrs banks in mary poppins that's why she oh. was familiar and she is still alive today wow. at 99 years old does she have a piece of Terry Thomas's body in a jar, though? <laughs> oh, we can hope. <laughs> One can only hope. That would be a nice memento. And <laughs> beyond just the amicus connection, Denham Elliott was also in The House That Drip Blood as well. That's right, he was. I forgot. It's so hard to see him in anything other than Indiana Jones films. I know. But just generally some nice connections between the two. I think if I was in the mood for an amicus one, I would probably pick The Vault of Horror. Hmm. But I did really enjoy both, don't get me wrong. I just felt like this one was slightly stronger overall. I feel like that for anthology, horror anthology films, you have to have a particular taste for it. It's not for everyone. I personally really enjoy it because it's kind of like just a variety bag. If you don't like the story that you've been given, just wait a little bit and you'll get a brand new story. I also agree that this is better than The House of Drip Blood, especially for uh, Anthony's points regarding the tone. And I also think that we had more stories here, more variety of stories here than we did with 
the House of Drip Blood. And personally to me, I think that it's this trick will kill you is the one that I enjoyed the most mm -hmm. out of these because it was just wonderfully bizarre in its ending. It didn't make anything too clear. There was no explanations as to why things happen certain ways. So I like that disjointedness. It makes you feel kind of unsettled. Did I say which one I actually liked the most? I don't think I did. I don't did. think you did. I am going to go with Drawn and Quartered. I think there's some wonderful tensions. Seeing parts of London that I grew up in kind of 20 years before I really knew them was pretty cool as well. But there was just some wonderful tension as he was running to try and get to his painting to avoid his own death. I thought it was just brilliantly done. The level of tension there really had me, to use a cliche term, on the edge of my seat. What was interesting <laughs> on that sequence, I actually didn't think he was choking to death because my assumption is that he couldn't breathe because there was no air in the safe. Mm -hmm. mm. I thought that the place had caught on fire. Yeah, that's what I thought. It was interesting because there were enough twists in these that you thought it was going to end a certain way, but just very, very slightly it's not. And that yeah. was another one. I think that just about wraps us up. We've had Chap Hop, Terry Thomas and Panties, <laughs> Terrence Fisher claiming he brought sex out of Dracula, walrus vampires, and poorly planned insurance scams. We have covered quite the gamut of topics, all of which will fill your nightmares. So from all of us, at Watchers in the Fourth Dimension, enjoy your spooky season, and good night. You've been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Julie Filipek, Anthony Williams, and myself, Riley Shrek. This bonus episode, Terry Thomas and Panties, was recorded on Tuesday, August 29th, 2023. If this is your first time listening, all of our previous episodes are available through your favorite podcasting app, and you can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Watchers4D. You can also email us at Watchers4D at gmail.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a review or rating. That really helps the show. And remember, don't cross a portrait artist who has access to voodoo.